Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. Proponents of distant reading practices in which computers are used to analyze vast quantities of textual material assert that their quantitative methods simultaneously complement and complicate traditional literary criticism. Today's guest, Ted Underwood, has established himself as an innovative leader in the use of digital reading practices, and his scholarship has helped raise new questions about literary history and revealed previously unperceived shifts in literary production and reception that span the course of centuries. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, he's working on a new book that continues his work using algorithmic models to better understand fiction from the 19th century to the present. Welcome, Ted. Thanks. So your topic, which is, I guess, tentatively titled, works with a perspectival history of fiction in English from 1800 to 2008. That's a very broad swath of time. (laughs) So how can you do this um, covering such a broad swath of time, and why those particular uh, particular dates, 1800 and 2008? So how to cover such a broad swath of time, that's exactly where, yes, digital methods do become useful. They don't release us from a need to read books, right? To understand what we're looking at, we, we actually need to read some examples of, you know, 19th century detective fiction, 20th century detective fiction. That's all still important. But using computers, using numbers, we can model, say, what was detective fiction like in the 19th century? And what was you know, hard, the hard-boiled detective like in the 20th? And then ask, say, does our model of the 19th century detective story, is it able to sort of pick out of a lineup a 20th century detective, so to speak? Can it recognize 20th century works, knowing nothing about that century? And if it can, then we, we, we're able to say there's something these two genres have in common beyond just you know, one reader's impression. So it, numbers and computers definitely do help us manage long timelines. About why 1800 and 2008, to be honest, that, that's really where we run into more just the limits of what's out there right now. Um, I would, I'd love to go a little further back into the 18th century, but our digital libraries get a little bit, the data gets dirtier in the 18th century because they print funny, frankly, and, and um, optical character readers have difficulty reading like the long S and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and the paper is just like, damaged or dirty. So we're still working on things like that. There are, there are limits to our collections. So this whole project of, of sort of distant reading and the use of a quantitative methodology is, of course, somewhat novel, particularly to a field like literary studies and literary judgment um, in terms of how we've approached things in terms of analysis and philosophy. Uh, mm-hmm. We've typically eschewed the quanti- quantitative Mm-hmm. So how do you justify this? Yeah, I mean, in fact, that's why I'm calling my project a perspectival history of fiction. Because I think, you know, there's, there are several things that are interesting about this. One of them is the particular things we can discover about genre or literary judgment. But there's also this broader question of the relationship between what the humanities have traditionally excelled at, historical particularity, um, specifics of an individual author or work, and what the social sciences have tended to do in their own separate realm, which is you know, broad generalizations about 
historic, you know, really more social laws or patterns. And we've tended in the humanities and history and literary study to insist that history is better understood at a particular level, that it doesn't reduce easily to three or four general variables. And I think we're right to say that. So when I start borrowing ideas from the social sciences um, and numbers and computers, I want to show at the same time that um, it's, it's possible for numbers and quantitative models to acknowledge and to bend to um, make room for the things humanities have, have rightly insisted on, historical particularity. In fact, I think really that's why this is possible. It's possible for this to happen now. We were right in the 20th century that statistical models couldn't help us much in literary study. You know, people actually tried. It's not that they didn't try, and the results were not all that exciting. And I think I think the people who you know said at the time there there are limits. The the models that we have at the time aren't really going to help us understand literature. We're broadly right because the models at that time didn't couldn't make a lot of room for the messy particularity that you actually get in human history. And I think we're we're seeing this sort of blurring of boundaries between social science and humanities now, actually because quantitative methods have changed to come closer to the humanities. Mm -hmm. how, you know, how that's happened, then that's part of what I, I have to explain, and it gets, it gets involved. But I think that's the big picture. So your project, uh, to some extent, is, is juxtaposing the judgment of reviewers in different periods to show how that juxtaposition could be a valuable way to trace literary change. So you're creating a kind of map of reception, a, uh, a database of, of, of responses. Yeah. So how do you account for lowbrow versus highbrow uh, in terms of reviewers? How do you uh, account for the sort of variation of types of reviewers and reviews? Oh, yeah, and you know, political orientation mm -hmm. and, yeah, just different critical schools. That's exactly what I'm hoping to do um, this year. Uh, you know, in, in the past, um, I and some of my collaborators have been able to show that we can, we can model literary taste. We can look at examples of things that were reviewed, say, you know, in the 1880s generally and, and then predict sight unseen, looking at some other books, which of these are likely to have, have been well-reviewed or reviewed in elite literary journals. But the complications of that, the, the different political orientations, critical orientations, are what we need to get at. So... This year, I'm constructing a much bigger database of, of literary reviewing than I've been able to work with in the past, um, using things like the Book Review Digest that have little excerpts of book reviews from 1906 to the present, and then just a lot of older periodicals. So we'll actually have not just a sample of elite magazines, but we'll be able to talk about the differences between different communities of reviewers, um, different individual periodicals. Mm -hmm. So you also talk about something called the microgenre. Could you uh, uh, elaborate on what a microgenre is for our listeners? <laughs> the term has become popular lately, I think, as much as anything because of Netflix, to be honest, that mm -hmm. they've sort of, the algorithm that they're using to model your taste and mine and the taste of our listeners um, has something like 70,000 different tiny things like, you know, documentaries with a strong female lead and... Christian films set in Czechoslovakia. It really gets down to that level. So, you know, the, the concept of this really micro-targeted genre is in some ways a very, a, it's sort of, its popularity is recent. But you can find analogous 
phenomena, you know, all the way back. Like, for instance, the thing 